The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you are warm. I mean, here in Pittsburgh, we have a real high degree of zero, zero, just zero. Although I have friends in other parts of the countries that I know it has been much colder than that. But I have four words for you. Spring, well, Okay, I'm going to make it more words. I know spring is coming. Spring is coming. Don't don't give up. Spring is coming. And, well, when it does, aren't we all going to be so happy? But anyway, today, wow, what a show today. Before I introduce this person, I just want to say how blessed I am to know her, how blessed the entire disability community in the United States is to have her, you know, just like that song by Sam Cooke, it's been a long time coming, Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, how many conversations did I have with Chris Griffin, with Tony Quello, with Mark Periello, with Andy Imperato, I mean, I could go on and go on for years and years. And I have to tell you, I just wasn't confident until it really got moving. I, I just didn't know if this would happen. Then I met Pat Shu. Then I knew that it would happen. She is, to me, and will be part of history because this is going to be the biggest game changer for employment for people with disabilities anywhere, everywhere. She is a blessing she is a national civil rights leader. She is part of the Obama administration. She is the head, the director of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs from the Department of Labor. My friend, but certainly your friend, Pat you welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joyce, and thank you for your kind words. Well, those words are a fact. That's a fact. And, Pat, we love you, and we appreciate everything you have done. And you are under that great, great Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, who I just love so much. And under your leadership, I have to ask you, what does it mean to you to know that you, Pat, with Section 503, are opening the doors of freedom for millions and millions of Americans with disabilities just from the final rule of Section 503. What I don't even can't imagine, but what does that mean to you? Well, it means we're doing our job and finally living up to the promise of opportunity that was enshrined in the Rehabilitation Act way back in 1973 
and then reaffirmed with the passage of the ADA 25 years ago. Um, freedom, Joyce, I think that is absolutely one way to characterize it. Um, because what I've learned after more than 30 years of working in employment law is that work really is about much more than a paycheck. It's about a person's dignity, their sense of self-worth and self-respect, and it's about their ability to sustain themselves and their families um, on their own terms, uh, on a livable wage. And President Obama and Secretary Perez, um, who are great leaders and whose vision and commitment made this happen, often talk about an opportunity agenda, an opportunity agenda in which every worker has a fair shot at finding, getting, keeping, and succeeding in a good job. It's that opportunity agenda that has to be protected. We have got to be vigilant in making sure that the hard-fought rights of the last century are sustained and expanded in this one. And that's the role that we play at OFCCP. Well, we are first and foremost a worker protection agency responsible for enforcing the civil rights of the nearly one quarter of American workers who either work for or try to get jobs with companies that receive federal contracts. I don't know about you, but when I first started this job, I had no idea um, what impact OFCCP had on the labor force. So it's our job at OFCCP to make sure those doors of opportunity are open for everyone and that they stay open. Sometimes we have to hold the door open and sometimes we have to pry it open. But the good news is, and what makes this work so rewarding for me personally, is that many employers are embracing their affirmative action responsibilities. And they're doing it not because they pity people, but because they see how diversity in the workforce benefits their missions enhances their bottom lines, and improves their brands. Over the past five years, I think you and I have met well, with federal, you know, numerous federal contractors who want to get this right and want to do right by their workforce. And we have been fortunate to be able to facilitate the success of such employers. Um, and I know there is one employer in general who I will not identify by name, but who I think is taking a real lead here, and this is one of the largest, probably within the top Fortune 50, um, that it, taking these responsibilities very seriously, taking a very deep dive into looking at the data, and, and being both objective and realistic about what can be done, but also thoughtful and visionary. And it's this sort of leadership that is going to make the difference in how this rule affects the lives of so many American workers and their families. So I know it's happening out there, and for this particular contractor, uh, which is involved in many industries all throughout the world, it for me um, is a privilege to learn that this sort of thing is happening and that we've been able to kind of work together to facilitate that sort of success. Yes, and I know who you're talking about, and they are doing a great 
job. I just want to also mention, when you were talking about the president's commitment, uh, Tony Quello and I met with Valerie Jarrett at the White House only a couple weeks ago and to talk about the success of 503 and your leadership and, as Tony said, what this means for people with disabilities. And we talked about, you know, those federal contractors and the White House is so excited, they want to work with all of us to have some type of champions of change for, you know, these federal contractors that aren't now just talking about it, but have a true plan for employment. You know, it may go through a process, but at the end of the day, it's all about jobs. And as a matter of fact, that is a quote that I had out on Twitter when Valerie Jarrett said, Everyone deserves a job, including people with disabilities. And that is what it's all about. And, you know, I am, I am so excited. I have to tell you, Pat, I never in a million years thought I would have all these companies calling me. Because, as you know, that's what I do, the employment of people with disabilities. But I see it. I can tell you I am actually seeing a wonderful and a great change. And you know what, Pat? A lot of people, and they have said this to me, they, you know, they don't totally understand everything about it. But I try to explain to them, well, there was a final rule amending 503 um, and that it prohibits discrimination of people with disabilities, as you said, by federal contractors and subcontractors. But for our listeners, I know there's a huge business community today listening to this show. I wondered if you could just take a minute and explain just the major changes that were amended. Sure. Um, let me just briefly review the six most important changes that were put in place by our final rule. First, a goal. The rule establishes for the first time ever a 7% utilization goal for individuals with disabilities, and the goal applies to every job group of a contractor's workforce, or if they have 100 or fewer employees, it applies to the contractor's entire workforce. And so what that means is that contractors have to aspire to have um, to reach this goal throughout the company, not just in the lower-level jobs. Um, the goal is aspirational. That's key. And the reason is, no doubt, because what this is is a management tool, this goal. Um, and contractors are expected to examine their policies and practices to determine whether and where impediments to equal employment exist, and then develop plans to address any deficiencies. That's what is really important, is that contractors have to, one, begin to collect data that they were not collecting before. If you don't collect data, you don't know where you are along the continuum and how successful your efforts may or may not be. And if you aren't collecting enough data to really zero in and how you could do better, then you don't have the roadmap. And so it's really, really important that contractors address deficiencies. And our staff at OFCCP is here to provide technical assistance and to help contractors do just that. So this single national goal is not an arbitrary quota that limits or restricts the employment of individuals with disabilities. 
It's not a floor, nor is it a ceiling. Instead, the goal is a metric. It's a management tool that should inform decision-making and provide real accountability. Failure to meet the goal is not a violation of our regulations in and of itself, but failure to try is. So that's the goal. Another very important provision. Did you have some questions, Joyce? No, no, I said that that is a not trying is absolutely not a good idea. You have to try. (laughs) Okay. The the second very important provision is the pre-offer self-identification. Our rule requires contractors to invite applicants to voluntarily, and let me underscore that, voluntarily self-identify as an individual with a disability at the pre-offer stage of the hiring process. It's a requirement for contractors to invite applicants to self-identify, but it is only voluntary for applicants to do so. So I just want to draw that distinction because it's an important one. That means before a job is even offered, job applicants will be invited to voluntarily tell an employer if they are a person with a disability. This is, of course, in addition to the longstanding requirement that contractors invite applicants to voluntarily self-identify after receiving a job offer. So the pre-offer self-ID is essential to good data collection and analysis that helps employers figure out if there are barriers in the application process that are keeping people with disabilities from getting hired. And let me just mention again the importance of data. Good, sound data is the foundation for good policy. And it is good policy that then becomes the foundation for effective enforcement. So that's why this is really important. Now, another major provision is ongoing self-identification. And some people may ask, you know, why is my employer asking me not once, not twice, but three times? You know, I've worked for this company for 15 years. I answered this question a while back. Why are they asking it again? And the rule requires contractors to invite their employees to voluntarily self-identify on a regular basis when they are on the job. And the reason is a person's disability status may change over time. This isn't just about collecting data, though. It's about creating a culture that says to workers, we value your contributions to this workplace. We are committed to hiring, training, placing, promoting, and fairly paying you. We ask you for this information not to pry, but to promote equal opportunity. We have an aging workforce, and there may be people who acquire disabilities over time that may not didn't, may not have had a disability at the time that they were first asked to disclose, or they may not have felt comfortable disclosing. And that may be the case for many, many people. And if that is the case, then companies need to ask themselves, what is it about this culture that makes my labor force hesitant to answer this question? That's something that contractors need to address on a case-by-case basis. Um, The other important provision is analysis. Contractors must now maintain several measurements and comparisons for the number of individuals with disabilities who apply for jobs and the numbers who actually get them. 
Having this data will enable both contractors and the OSCCP to evaluate the effectiveness of their outreach and recruitment efforts and to examine selection processes related to individuals with disabilities. Again, it's about data. It's about looking at what you're doing. It's about tweaking what you're doing, refining, thinking it through, thinking about new ideas. This is a process that's going to be refined over time as contractors begin to focus more and more on it. And again, OFCCP is here to help with technical compliance. Another major provision is prime to sub. And by that I mean prime contractors are required. They're required to include specific mandated language in their subcontracts in order to make sure that the companies they work with are aware that they have the same equal employment opportunity obligations as the prime. Remember, our jurisdiction at OFCCP covers both federal contractors and subcontractors. And what we do has a ripple effect across the entire economy because of the sheer number of companies that either receive or want to be eligible for federal contracting dollars. That's the power of the federal purse. And I cannot tell you how important it is that prime contractors communicate these obligations to their subcontractors. Because very often it's the subcontractors that employ dozens or hundreds of people, and we want to make sure that there is a cascading effect, that everybody understands what their obligations are. And that's what we're about here at OFCCP, is to make sure contractors understand what their obligations are and to facilitate their success, whether they're primes or they're subs. So, Excuse me. And yeah. some of those subcontractors are very, very large. So my question to you is, what would be the repercussions to the prime contractor if they did not include that language? Well, it's, it's a violation of, of the regulation not to include the mandated language. But what's most important here is that you know, the language is important to include, but what's also important to include is the message that the prime has to the sub, which is, we take this seriously, we need you to take this seriously. Um, again, it goes back to the culture of inclusion, and we want to make sure that that message gets sent from the prime to the sub, just like a message has to be sent from the head of the corporation down through its ranks, because if that message doesn't get sent, People don't know to take it seriously. Um, hold on one minute, Pat. I think we have a caller on the line. Do we have a caller? Uh, yes, Joyce. This is Mark Cariello. How are you? Hi, Mark. How are you today? I am doing really well. Thank Good. you. Um, have- so, Pat, how are you? Um, Hi, Mark. How are I- you? Wonderful. Um, I have a question for you. Um, You know, one of the things that um, the community, the disability community, is very concerned about is how um, tough will enforcement be on these new regulations? Um, And, you know, there are a lot of people out there um, on the business side who conversely sort of of look at this aspirational goal um, and wonder what enforcement will look like um, because it is aspirational. um, And so what are the concrete things that OFCCP will be looking at? Um, Can you talk a little bit about enforcement um, and and how you all will be approaching? 
Um, well, I can just tell you generally with respect to our overall enforcement that we take it very seriously for all of the laws that we enforce, whether it's race discrimination or national origin or pay equity or um, now with our new LGBT. I mean, we are totally committed to the enforcement scheme. The enforcement scheme may look a little different under Section 503, one, because it is a data, in part it's collecting data, it's requiring contractors to address their own deficiencies. We have not, there hasn't been enough time that's passed since the um, reg went into effect to give you any definitive, like, five-year outlook on what the data looks like and how many um, contractors are actually hitting the 7% aspirational goals. But I can tell you that we are going to be enforcing what their obligations are to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's what's important, is that this is going to take a number of different stages. Part of it is making sure, one, that these contractors have in place some of the policies and procedures that were already mandated before this regulation went into effect. I can't tell you how many contractors um, did not seem to understand what some of its basic responsibilities were under the Rehab Act way before the regulation went into effect and weren't even complying with that. Um, So it's taking it from... Um, an enforcement scheme that there wasn't a lot of enforcement to now there are specific things that we can look at and specific things that we can track in terms of um, contractors' data collection, their efforts now versus later versus in the future to recruit, where they're recruiting, how they're recruiting, what do the numbers show, um, and what sort of thinking have they done? This is not an exercise where you can put together something the day before OFCCP comes for an audit. This is a long-term approach, and we expect the contractors are going to be able to show that they have put much thought into this process. Right. Thank you. Um, before I get off the phone, I just want to say, you know, this has such huge potential for people with disabilities um, that I am so grateful for your leadership. Um, when it comes right down to it, um, I don't know if we would see these revised regulations of you and others um, at the Department of Labor um, and in the administration. So thank you for your leadership and all that you're doing to really help change employment outcomes for people with disabilities. Well, well, thank you, Mark. But let me just make it very clear that this is the president's vision and it's the president's leadership It's um, Secretary Perez. I think this is one of the first things that he did was go to a meeting at the White House right after um, he sat as um, became the the head of our agency. And so I'm um, very privileged to have had the opportunity to kind of be at the right place at the right time and and to be a part of a much bigger um, effort and I have to just tell you that all my colleagues at the Department of Labor share in this victory and are as committed as I am and my staff is to making sure we get it right. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. So, um, Joyce, can I just hit my final point under the major points yes, of our final Yes, and after rule? you hit that final point, we actually have a corporation on the line. Okay. So the final okay. point um, is the ADA updates. 
Um, so finally, we implemented a series of changes to our regulations that were necessitated by the passage of the ADA Amendments Act of 2008, and the most significant being the revised and much expanded definition of disability. So we wanted, of course, to make sure that our Section 503 reg comports with the definition under, under that law as well. So that's it for the major provisions. Well, thank you very much for going over that because uh, uh, those points, I'm sure, are really great for businesses to hear today to pass on to their staff. Um, so thank you so much. But I know we have a caller on the line. Caller, are you there? Yes. This is Sarah Oliver Carter calling from Highmark. How are you, Hello, Ms. Hello, Sarah. Joyce? How are you? Hi, Doing how well. are you? You have you have a question or comment for Pat? Just a comment. I just want to you know take this opportunity to thank Ms. Hsu for you know taking time out of her busy schedule to kind of walk through the new regulations. I believe it'll be helpful to a lot of uh, organizations out there. So thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. You know, this is a different exercise than, for example, some of our hiring discrimination cases. This is not a check the box kind of analysis. It's much more nuanced. And when we set our metrics, our aspirational goal, what we did is we said, okay, business, you wanted to tell us, you, don't, you did not want us to prescribe for you how to, how to get there because you don't know our business, you don't know our business policies. Just tell us what you want and let us figure out how to get there. And so what that requires then is that business and businesses like yours um, take the time and they really have the responsibility to kind of think this through as much as they would any other business process because that's what it is. It's a business process. Um, and I want to thank you for taking the time to, um, to listen to this show, and I hope that others will find it useful. But our compliance officers um, are very much interested in hearing what your theories and philosophies are about why you did what you did, why you're recruiting where you're recruiting, um, how you're doing your recruiting. I mean, the best and brightest ideas about how to do this are going to come from the business community. You know your business is much better than I do, and we wanted to make sure you had that leeway to utilize all of your creativity to get you there because we think it's very important that no one leaves talent on the table. Absolutely. And again, thank you. You're welcome. Hold Great on there, Sarah. Advice. You're so humble, Sarah. You are. You <laughs> this this uh, woman who is in an executive position and chief diversity officer for Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield. Now, Sarah, how large is Highmark now? Oh, we're a fairly large organization. Um, we're about oh, 30,000 plus at this point. Okay. Um, All right. And that includes Pat, the... Uh, Pat, here's a little trivia. Because they're in several states. They're really large. Highmark sent a letter to President Obama supporting 503 as you were going through all this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, way before. Like when Tom Ridge did, they did. And, Pat, here's a company, great company for your, you to you know, do something with when you have questions because they have been hiring people with disabilities from me since 1995 because, Sarah, 
You know this is our 20th anniversary? It is? Yes. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. But, I mean, this company is awesome, and so is Sarah. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for your leadership, and thank you for calling in. Thank well, you. Well, perhaps, Sarah, we could set up a time where you could share with us some of your best practices. Absolutely. Um, one of the, and we could t- you could talk with Deborah Carr, my head of policy. One of the things we're trying to do is put a post on our website all best practices from companies that have done it and have done it really well and um, love to hear your, your success stories and share them with others. Absolutely. And you know what, Sarah, another great thing is Thank if we you. could get some companies together here mm. uh, and we could uh, host some type of town hall meeting, so to speak, and have Pat come. You know, that would be a fabulous idea. Okay, well, we'll work Again, on that. Thank you so much. You're thank welcome. You. Bye-bye. All right, now we have another caller on the line, and I can't lose this caller. Are you on the line, caller? Yes, I'm on the line. I definitely want to be on the line with Pat. Um, and are so you Tony Coelho? I am Tony Coelho. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, how are you? Fine, Pat. Uh, I I brag about you all the time and what you're doing. I mean, I it's just amazing to me uh, with the enforcement of 503 how many jobs will be created uh, for those of us in the disability community. Um, it's really exciting. Um, you you and Tom told me one time what you thought it would be. Do you want to give that figure? Um, I think. Oh, gosh, how many did we think it was going to be with the first year if all the contractors hit um, the 7%? 600,000? Uh, 464,000. 464,000, if everyone hit it the, the first year. Yeah. Well, you I mean, real- that is amazing. Yeah. Well, and the thing about it is obviously not everyone is, right? But it tells you the impact of 503 uh, as it builds up over the years. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a huge, huge opportunity for uh, those of us in the disability community. So, I mean, I think, Joyce, all your listeners, I've said this before while Pat's been on one of your calls, is that um, Pat is absolutely fabulous and working with uh, the contractors and the subcontractors not in a hostile way, but in an aggressive, polite way, um, that she wants them to establish their goals and show that they're going for them. Uh, Obviously, the executive order uh, implies that if you're not, then they can take action. But the the fact is, is that we don't want to take action against anybody. We just want them to set a goal and to show us that they're working for it, and, and they would get uh, very qualified people to do uh, exceptional work for them. So it's a win-win for everybody. I think so. And, and Tony, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Um, you are certainly one of the leaders um, in the disability movement and one of the architects of the ADA and have had you know, spent your whole life um, advocating for this. And so um, when I think about the 50th anniversary of uh, the Executive Order 11246, and I think about the 50th anniversary of the 1964 Civil Rights Act last year, you know, it was about jobs. A lot yep. of this was about jobs, not just about civil rights. Civil, civil rights are important, but jobs and par- are part and parcel 
to economic security and economic freedom. And so as we celebrate the ADA, I think we need to keep in mind that there's a real parallel here to what was happening 50 years ago. And it's that movement forward that kind of keeps us all... um, keeps us all keeping the faith, I guess is the way I would say it, coming from the south side of Chicago, um, but it's that also, we can Pat, move forward. It's also, Pat, uh, making sure that all of us are part of the American family. Um, That's exactly right. If, if you don't have jobs, then you're really not part of the family because you can't provide for yourself and you can't provide for your loved ones and you're not a contributor to society in general. And And those folks who don't have jobs, I really feel for, with or without a disability, but people in the disability community have been uh, basically shut out uh, as a class uh, on this regard. And, and uh, you know, getting the ADA, as the author of the ADA, I think it's wonderful and I think it's great that this is the 25th year, but without a job, it doesn't do us much good. Uh, obviously, we can go to court on discrimination and other things that have happened, but the job is the critical one. And uh, basically, uh, as you know, I I worked on that 503 issue for about 25 years to try to get it done, and it's been difficult to get done because you had to have a definition of disability, then you had to get the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Census Bureau to come together on what question they would ask and, and all that stuff, so it took us a long time to get it implemented. But now that it's implemented and you're enforcing it, I think that it's as significant, if not more so, than the ADA. And so I'm really excited uh, that the president uh, issued the executive order, but I'm just as excited that, that you're in charge of this effort because you, you were determined to make it work, but you have the right attitude of not offending uh, contractors and subcontractors, but making them feel good about uh, implementing this executive order. So I applaud you tremendously on, on the way you're handling things. Well, well, thank you. And if I could just share just a, a personal note, I, I went into the area of law I practiced in for many years before I got here, which is um, workplace discrimination, and I've done all kinds of it, because I believe in the value of work to an individual sense of self-worth and integrity and dignity. It's part of being, it's a part of being the social fabric, having a job, getting up, going to work, sometimes complaining about your boss, but you're part of a larger, um, a larger fabric. And for people who do not work, they um, are, they're missing out. There have been lots of studies about people who don't work and how they feel isolated, they feel excluded. You know, all, Dr. King said, all honest work is good work. Yep. And I really do believe that you cannot leave talent on the table. I do believe that it is really essential to American workers and their family's sense of pride. Yep, I agree. I agree. I totally agree. Well, I just wanted to get on this call today, Joyce, to make sure all your uh, listeners just know uh, what a great job that Pat is doing and how much I personally appreciate it uh, because uh, she and all of her cohorts are making a huge difference for our community. So I just want to say thank you, Pat. Appreciate it very much. And, Tony, if you can stay with us just a couple more minutes, I wanted to point out something you have talked about um, first, 
President Obama, how he has done so much for people with disabilities. And I, I'm not, I don't think people realize that. Well, when I look at the different things, you know, look at uh, on Obamacare, uh, and I call that very respectively Obamacare, it's his, and he deserves the credit for it. Um, the, uh, if, you, if you get, if you look at just the number of people with pre-existing conditions who could not get insurance, that is probably one of the most significant things that's happened positively for our community. Um, you know, the ADA is great, the 503 is absolutely necessary, but getting insurance uh, is, is critical for those of us with health conditions and so forth who've been denied by the insurance companies all these years. Uh, and then extending uh, coverage for families with, with uh, kids until they're 26 so uh, the kids can uh, uh, still be at home and get the coverage and so forth. That is extremely significant for a group of people. But when you go across the board on the things that he has done for those of us with disabilities, in my view, and I've been around for the last five presidents very actively, um, he has done more for disabilities than all other presidents. Uh, I'm not saying that others were negative. I'm just saying that uh, President Obama has aggressively put in place uh, uh, things that have had a tremendous impact on our community. As Joyce knows, Pat, um, we worked very hard at the beginning of his administration to get individuals with disabilities jobs in his administration. And we got a lot of them placed that are now developing experience and so forth, and they're now on the bench, as I call it, uh, for other jobs in the future because they have experience. And our community has not had that opportunity much. And so, um, you know, it, it's, you go on and on about the things that, that he has done that have had a tremendous impact on our community. And another example of that would be uh, Valerie Jarrett, who you've met with several times. But recently, um, I, I was mentioning here to Pat and our listeners how committed she is. Oh, yeah. Valerie, if, if Pat knows this, says that yeah. if it weren't for Pat, for Valerie, we would have not gotten 503 done. And I say that very aggressively and very openly. Um, uh, worked on President Obama, and he has a lot of things to do, said yes, yes, of course. Uh, but it never got done. And then uh, in a meeting with the president and Valerie and Tom Perez, and I don't remember if you were there, Pat, but um, the president said, let's do it. And he left the room to go on and do what else he was doing. Pat turns to Tom, I mean, uh, Valerie turns to Tom and says, let's get it done now. And Tom says, yeah, right now. And so we ended up the meeting, and the two of them went into a room and put things in place that got us to where we needed to be to get the executive order done. Um, and so Valerie is, has been the key for our community in so many different ways. Uh, and I really, really respect uh, what she's done. Absolutely. One last, one last thing um, I want to mention is that there is a very prestigious national award given every year to a leader that has really made change 
in the area of the employment of people with disabilities. And as a matter of fact, it has been senators, CEOs, organizations like the National Security Agency. Last year it was uh, Senator Harkin. And I am very uh, proud to say that this year in January, the recipient of the Tony Quello Award is Secretary Tom Perez. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, Yeah, and I think the interesting thing there, just for your listeners to know, is that uh, let's go to ADA. Uh, ADA was passed 25 years ago, as we all know, and it was moderately enforced. Um, And uh, Tom became head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, and he aggressively enforced it. And so we have gotten uh, more enforcement out of this administration under Tom's leadership than all other administrations combined. I mean, it's been amazing how much movement or how much progress has been made with a little enforcement from the Justice Department. And we're talking about cities and counties and and organizations and companies and so forth just across the board. And, uh, of course, now Tom with, with 503 and and what he's doing uh, at the Labor Department and on a lot of different issues dealing with us. Uh, he's had a huge impact uh, on the enforcement uh, of uh, the ADA, so he is very deserving of the award. And I know, I knew, Tony, how much you think of him and Pat, but before you go, Tony, uh, without you this wouldn't be happening either, and uh, all of our listeners know how much I love you, but I know they love you also. Um, so thank you for calling in. Thank you, Joyce. As you know, this is my ministry, so it's not an issue with me. And, Pat, <laughs> thank you again for all you do for us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, I'll tell you what, he is just an awesome person. And I think you can see, Pat, the enormous impact this has had on those of us in the disability community. You know, I'm living with epilepsy and going way back to when you were talking, you know, about your points, about sometimes people will say, well, why are you going back asking me, you know, to voluntarily self-identify again? I've already, why are you coming back? Okay, epilepsy. The majority of people that start to get Epilepsy are people that are going into senior time, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s. Do you know what I mean? Yes. One in 26 people will live with, have uh, epilepsy in their lifetime. And that's just one example. In other words, things change. You know, that was really a good point that you made um, earlier on when you were speaking. And the other comment I want to make is when you said, hey, What's important is getting something done. Well, my analogy there is you can't build a house without, you know, you can't say, okay, I'm going to build a house. Within a year, I'm going to build a house. Year comes, you haven't done anything, no architects, no drawing, no nothing. It's those steps getting there that I think you're saying are so important. Am I right? That, that's right. And, and if I could... Uh, just respond to your first comment. Um, what what we want to do um, here at the Department of Labor is make sure that people can bring their whole self to work. 
that there is no shame in, in being who you are. And I do think we could probably take a page from the playbook of the LGBT community that embrace the notion of being out um, and bringing their whole selves to work. And so it requires a culture change because there are real, there can be real issues out there with respect to retaliation. But as companies begin to delve into what their workplace is really like, what they are, the attitudes are among their supervisors and others, and think about um, what their policies say and um, what values they espouse, it makes it easier for people to bring their whole selves to work. And that's what I think is, is really important. Yes, I do too. Uh, very well stated. And you know, by the way, there are companies that have said to me, hey, what about this new law? When did that happen? So I'm glad that you brought up, no, not new, just never really enforced because uh, that was President Nixon. Because it's a long time ago. It right. isn't new. No, it's not new. It's um, back, exactly been on the books for about 42 years. Um, as I recall, passed by a Democratic Congress and signed by, as you stated, a Republican president. Um, this is Section 503, um, the Rehab Act. You know, put simply, Section 503 of the Rehab Act requires employers to prohibit discrimination and to take affirmative action in order to recruit, employ, train, and promote qualified individuals with disabilities in their workforce. And let me just make one comment about that. This regulation is limited to federal contractors. Federal contractors employ about one out of four, one out of five um, employees in the labor force. And through taxpayer dollars, we pay federal contractors for all the goods and services they provide. So it's the taxpayer money that is being paid to these federal contractors to not only do a good job and make a good widget and make it on time, and, but also to comply with the EEO policies of this government and the values um, that those EEO policies espouse. So I think that's an important component because it's a little different than the ADA, and that, just to make it really clear, is the reason why we can ask for people to self-identify pre-offer is because you can ask contractors and employers can ask anyone to self-identify pre-offer if it's in furtherance of an affirmative action plan. Now, it's mostly just federal contractors that have affirmative action plans, um, but there could be an employer that also has an affirmative action plan as well. So that's for those of you who are like, why? I thought you, could, you weren't supposed to ask. That's the reason why, because it's done in furtherance of an affirmative action goal, which is why when employers, contractors ask people to self-identify, they need to put it in a context. The reason why we're asking you is not to isolate you, not to segregate you, not to retaliate against you, but to ensure that you get equal employment opportunity. And when it's put in that context and it's backed up by action and real policies and an adherence, to reasonable accommodation and fair practices, then it begins to create the culture that we are endeavoring to have contractors create. So that's just the other kind of bigger piece, the context for all of this, and 
why it's so important. I think it's not required by the regulation, but I think it's very important for contractors to message. One, this is important information for us to have. Why is it important? Because we want to know so we can make sure that people are hired, recruited, promoted, retained. And, you know, I'm so glad you explained that because I will go talk to customers and sometimes they'll say to me, well, I thought that you're violating the ADA when you ask people this question. I said, no, it's part of affirmative action. It's voluntary, and you are not saying, tell me what your disability is. No, Um, absolutely not. I mean, the contractor must inquire. The um, employee or applicant does not have to state um, they don't have to answer whether they have a disability or not, and they certainly, and this it's not even required or requested that they identify their disability at all. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to try and find out in the aggregate, how well are you doing in terms of who you're recruiting? How well are you doing in terms of who you're hiring? How well are you doing in terms of retention and promotion? And the only way to do that really is to find out what the, the, the data shows. And if I could say this to all the members of SHRM or the BLN or people that work with AAPD or NOD um, that have asked me this question, you can hear this show going back to voiceamerica.com uh, or benderconsult.com, and you can download it from iTunes um, if you're wanting a way of sharing this with your HR compliance staff. Uh, and, and, Pat, I so appreciate you taking time to explain some of these things because, hey, you know, they are big things. My pleasure. So, Pat, here's my question. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what are your expectations of employers by the end of 2016? Um, or I should say, what do you hope to see by the end of 2016? Well, in, we hope to see more of the what gets measured gets done um, approach, what data keeping, you know, has been actually done. In, in 2016, this is the second full year under the updated 503 regulations. Um, and so contractors should be in compliance with all parts of the regulation and should have a year's worth of the outreach um, hiring and recruitment data. So there's some of those things that, you know, we we expect the hiring data to include, you know, many of the things that I had talked about. But if what you're asking me is what do I think by the end of 2016, um, towards the end of this administration, um, I'm going to assume the contractors have fully embraced their obligations. that the data collected during our compliance evaluations in 2018 should yield in indications of the effectiveness of outreach and recruitment efforts. I think contractors are now beginning to see the benefits of taking the deep dive, so to speak, and thinking through their own internal processes and realizing that um, this is not you know, just compliance with the law, this makes good business sense. Um, I think contractors are going to be more nuanced and refined and sophisticated in terms of how they're performing against the aspirational goal. 
and some early indications about the rate of self-identification. So that's going to be important. But remember, it's not until 2018 that we will have three complete years of employment data under these regulations. So here's the thing. We know that change on this scale is going to be a process. It's not a switch. And a big part of that process is going to be about getting employers to change the culture of their workplaces and reassuring workers that it is okay, as I mentioned, to bring your whole self to work. You know, I know there are many people listening today who may not feel comfortable self-identifying as a person with a disability. I totally understand that. Maybe they don't even see themselves that way, and I understand that as well. They may be worried about being passed over for a job. If they do self-identify, I mean, I, I get that. But what I would like to accomplish by the end of this administration is to make sure that every worker with a disability knows that they are valued in America's workplaces, that they are wanted, and that there is a place for them. I want you to know that you have protections against discrimination, be they from OFCCP or the EEOC. I want them to know that we here um, at the Department of Justice, the EOC, and OFCCP have your back, and that the employers that um, OFCCP regulates will be held accountable to their obligations to make workplaces safe, accommodating, fair, and inclusive. This is how things change, and I believe this is how things get better. Oh, I do. I love that we've got your back, and I know you do. And you know, people with disabilities listening, just as Pat said, I understand that you know it may take time, but to employers, that's why you've got to start getting these things in place. That's why you've got to work to make your company, your culture, more inclusive. And as Chris Griffin would always say, here's a good start, hire someone, because that really says it all when people see other people with disabilities employed. So, Pat, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Joyce. And what message would you like to leave with our listeners today, Pat? Well, I've mentioned that in September we're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the executive order, which, as you know, gave birth to um, OFCCP, my agency, and we will reflect on all that we've achieved in the past century to move the nation forward and to open doors of opportunity and make our workplaces reflect the richness and diversity of our greatest assets, which are our workers, of course. You know, it's no accident that OCCP was born a month after the Voting Rights Act became law. It's because Dr. King and all the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement understood that access to public accommodations, school integration, and the right to vote were incredibly important. But civil rights, as I mentioned before, without economic security would be meaningless. Everyone deserves the opportunity to work and to contribute to the greater good. And we're in the business of making sure that everyone who wants to get a fair shot and a fair shake gets one. And that's 50 years well spent, I think. So thank you. You're welcome. And, you know, we end every show with a quote from a famous civil rights leader or just someone that has impacted employment. And today... 
actually, it is Pat Shu who said, you cannot leave talent on the table. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Lead on. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.